If you want to take your Bibles out, I'm going to be reading from Paul's letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 13. Hear now God's word. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Amen. God bless this reading of his word. Let us turn to him in prayer. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word and your spirit. And we ask that my words would be according to your holy written word and that your spirit would use these words to glorify you and to strengthen your people. To that end, we pray these things in Jesus' name. It was a Wednesday evening about seven years ago. I was home alone. My wife was away on a school trip. I was cleaning up from supper when the phone rang. It was my younger sister. She said simply, Dan, Sandy is dead. I immediately sat on the floor. Maybe I just collapsed. I couldn't believe it. My only brother, who was only 19 months older than I was, Sandy. We had grown up together. We had gone to college together. In many ways, he was my best friend as I grew up. He was the best man at my wedding, and I was at his. And he was dead. He'd been cross-country skiing with his older son and had a massive heart attack and literally dropped dead. Now, as a pastor... I have performed literally dozens of funerals, from the premature infant to a lady over a hundred. But no death struck at me like this death did. Perhaps you have experienced someone else's death who was close to you, a death that literally shook your very being and shook your faith. Or maybe you have not yet. But whether you like to admit it or not, death is always there. It's an imminent possibility. You may be thinking to yourself, oh, I know generations above me, my parents and grandparents are still alive. But death sometimes skips generations. For most of you in this room, the numbers do not suggest your death is very likely immediately, but much more so for someone 50, 70, or 90. But if you actually look at those numbers, they may shock you. 
according to the Centers for Disease Control. Those who are in the age bracket 15 to 24 in the United States have approximately a 1 in 1,000 chance of dying this year. Therefore, look around you. On the average, one person in this student body will die each year you are here at the college. Which one this year? Therefore, I want you to think about the gospel and death. I want to focus you on the comfort of the gospel as you face death, either a friend or of a relative or your own. I'd encourage you then to follow along as we examine 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. First, the apostle begins with the basis for our comfort in verses 13, the beginning of verse 14. Paul begins his address on this topic by saying to the Thessalonian Christians, he does not want them to be ignorant. Paul presents the truth in order to comfort them, for the only real basis for comfort is truth. And linking to this speaking the truth, he also writes concerning grief. But notice how Paul puts it. He does not say Christians do not grieve, but he says they do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now that is a very important point in beginning. Scripture knows nothing wrong with grief. There's nothing wrong with Christians grieving. In Acts 9, when a lady named Tabitha died, we have recorded that Christians were crying and grieving. And when Peter came, he did not rebuke them for their grief. Yet when the apostles saw outright sin, they did rebuke people. When Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, he himself wept, knowing that literally in a few minutes he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. You see, the difference between Christian grief and non-Christian grief is hope. We have a hope in the midst of our grief. We have a hope that can sustain us during grief. We have a hope beyond the grave. Therefore, this passage was written to encourage Christians in their grief. But we need to realize that there are some limits on the application of this passage. For this information is for Christians concerning Christians. Paul specifically addresses this section to brothers, that is to fellow believers, and it's about Christians. He defines those who fall asleep in verse 13, more specifically as those who have fallen asleep in him in verse 14, and the dead in Christ in verse 16. So the comfort he gives is for Christians, for fellow Christians. Paul is not talking about non-Christians. He does not talk about whether non-Christians continue on after these events or not. That is not his purpose in this passage. And then Paul states why they can have a hope in the midst of grief. In verse 14, he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. All of Paul's reasoning depends on this statement, on this fact that the Christian faith is based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I want you to think about those two truths for just a moment. If you don't believe that Jesus died in order to pay the penalty for sin then your sin still has to be dealt with and paid for by you. The purpose of Christ's death was to take your sin and the sins of all believers upon him. He had to die. You needed someone else to take the wrath of God. God's justice had to be satisfied. 
And if you don't believe that Jesus rose again, then you believe that Jesus' body just rotted in a grave. And he's still dead. If Jesus didn't rise, he didn't conquer death, which the Bible says is the penalty for sin. If he didn't rise, you have no hope and no reason for hope whatsoever. There is only this present life. Then at best, nothing. At worst, eternal punishment. Those who claim to believe in the resurrection, if it did not happen, are ultimately pitiful fools, if it did not happen. But the reason Paul wrote was not to discourage believers, but to encourage them and remind them. His statement does not express any doubt about the validity and certainty of the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the way the sentence is structured in Greek, it could be translated, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is your basis and only basis for hope. You believe that Jesus died and rose again, that he has conquered death and he will never die again. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope for you or for anyone else. Why? Because every one of you, everyone you know, Everyone who has ever lived except Jesus himself is a sinner. And as sinners, you deserve God's penalty and sentence of judgment. But you believe that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. And all who trust in this fact, the scriptures say, are forgiven of all their sins. Therefore, you can have hope. For it's not based on yourself. It's not based on what you have done, on who you are. It's based on a person, the Lord Jesus who died for you and rose to conquer death for you. When a fellow believer dies, your hope is not that she was a really wonderful person or he was always so kind. No, it's that Jesus died and rose again in their behalf. My hope concerning my brother is not that he was a good brother, husband, or father, but that he was saved by the grace of God. Thus you... As a Christian, and only you as a Christian can have hope because you believe in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the basis of our hope and comfort. Second, I'd have you see the accomplishment of our comfort. This is from the middle of verse 14 up to the beginning of verse 16. Paul says at the end of verse 14 and into verse 15, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we, who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul has based his whole argument, as I mentioned, on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now he begins to draw a conclusion from that fact. That's why he begins, and so, or in thus. And the reason that this is an inevitable conclusion is that all Christians are in Christ, or in him. Even though those Christians who have died, died in him or through him, according to this passage. All Christians are thus united to Jesus, so that what happened to Jesus happens to us and guarantees what will yet happen to us in the future. Because Jesus has ushered in the age of life and resurrection, then this has a profound impact on us and should give us great comfort. 
Consider then the great promises he has given to all believers. He says in verse 14, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now in this passage, sleep is used as a reference to death. Those who are asleep are those who have died. And these are contrasted to those who are alive and remain until Jesus returns. Now it's important to notice that Paul is not talking about soul sleep. Soul sleep is the idea that upon death your soul is, as it were, asleep until Christ returns. Sleep here is rather a reference to how the body appears at death or how a believer rests from his or her labors. How do we know that? Well, both from this passage and from numerous other passages as well. When a believer dies, the soul of the believer goes to be with the Lord. You remember what Jesus on the cross said to the thief. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You remember from Philippians chapter 1 when the Apostle Paul was talking about the possibility of his own death. And he realizes it could be very soon because he's in prison. And he said, it's better that I depart and be with Christ. Or you may remember from 2 Corinthians 5.8 where it is said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What Paul is emphasizing is that at Christ's return, the believer who has already died is at no disadvantage to the believer who is still alive at that time. There is no disadvantage because the believer being with Jesus will return. And notice what it says explicitly in our passage. They will return with him. Verse 14, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So there's no disadvantage whatsoever for you as a believer if you should die before Jesus Christ personally returns. Upon death you go to be with him, and upon his return you come back with him. I think it's also important to notice that Paul identifies himself with those who are alive at the return of Jesus. He says, we who are still alive. Now a number of ways, people have dealt with that phrase a number of different ways. Some have suggested that Paul thought the second coming was going to happen during his lifetime, and he was simply wrong. I think that pushes Paul's words too far. It is true, he does identify himself with the living, but elsewhere he reckons with the possibility of his own death. A second way of dealing with this passage is to say, it is really just referring to whoever happens to be living at the time of Christ's return. Now, that basically is a true statement, but I'm not sure it's quite full enough. I think it goes beyond that. When you read through passages on the return of Christ, the New Testament, it constantly gives ethical exhortation that you, first generation, second generation, third generation, are to be ready for his return. Thus, I think that the most likely possibility is that Paul did believe Jesus could return during his lifetime, and he includes himself with the living because he was still alive. This, of course, does not mean he excluded the possibility of his own death before Jesus would come back. He just did not know the time. And I would suggest that's the attitude we should have in every generation of the church. Notice how Paul describes the return of Jesus in verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Elsewhere we see in Scripture that Christ's return is described visibly. He shall descend visibly. That's the parallel made in Acts 1. But our passage focuses on he will return audibly. That is, you will hear it. 
Look at what Paul says. There will be a shout, a word of command. The voice of the archangel will be heard, the leader of God's army. And the trumpet of God will sound. And in the Old Testament, when the trumpet sounds, it's because God is present or his army is being called together to fight. Now, I think it's important to take a moment on this because one of the most popular forms of eschatology in our country uses this passage as one of its primary texts to prove a secret rapture. There is no problem with the term rapture. That is meeting the Lord in the air. The problem is, does this sound to you like a secret? A command, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God. It is anything but a secret. It is the great returning warrior. It is no secret at all. Look at what the passage actually says. Now, my friends, consider how this should actually comfort you. Whether you are still alive when Jesus returns or whether you die before that time, you will still be with Jesus. And if you die before, you will return with Jesus. Thus, you can look forward to the return of our Lord and Savior, just as the first-generation Christians could look forward to it. For your returning, conquering king is coming, and it will be no secret. As well, since the apostles did not know the time of his return, but anticipated at least the possibility of his return during their lifetime, how much more should you today live in expectation of the possible return of Jesus in our lifetime? Therefore, my brothers and sisters in Christ, be comforted because the Savior who died for you, the Savior who conquered death for you, the Savior you depart to be with upon death is the Savior who will return. And so we've seen the basis of comfort in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The accomplishment of our comfort is at the return of Jesus Christ. And the third thing I'd have you see is the fullness of our comfort in verses, the end of verse 16 through 17. Paul continues in verse 16 and 17 says, And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The most amazing thing happens when Jesus Christ returns. Paul says the dead in Christ rise first. That is, those who are asleep, who are returning with Jesus. As souls absent from the body, this present body, they then will receive their resurrection bodies. Then the believers who are still left will be transformed, getting their resurrection bodies directly, and all of them rise to meet the Lord in the air. The idea of the resurrection is at the very heart of our scriptural hope. We don't just believe in some vague, eternal existence. We believe in resurrection of the body. Many groups throughout history have believed in the immortality of the soul. Some of the Greeks thought the body was a prison for the soul, but not the scriptures. The Bible teaches that when Jesus returns, we will all have real, physical bodies to live in, bodies that can be touched and seen, that are recognizable but not destructible. Bodies that will be similar to our present bodies and yet somehow gloriously transformed. Just as Christ was at his resurrection on that first Easter Sunday. Now, you may read different articles at different times, 
that suggest that possible scientific discoveries may extend our lifetime, and people even suggest one or two times what we normally have. I have to question some of those things, but even if science should come up with things that do extend our lifetime a great deal, death will not be conquered, merely postponed. But you, as a believer, when Jesus returns, death will be obliterated. There will not just be an extension of this present life, but a resurrection life. There'll be no more death, no more accidents, no more mortality, because sin itself will be defeated. Righteousness will reign supreme. My brothers and sisters in Christ, there are many things in this world of ours that are truly enjoyable and are meant to be enjoyed. But there's something much better coming for you. You shouldn't desire to live forever in a sinful world with its problems, its crimes, its rebellion against your God, and its ever-present death. Rather, at the same time enjoying this world which our God has created, you should look forward to a renewed world. Your hope as a Christian is not some vague hope that says you're going to exist forever as some sort of ghost-like creature. No, you have a bodily hope. Your body and soul will be renewed and reunited at Christ's return. Thus, as you think about death and the return of Jesus, you should be comforted because the basis of your comfort is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The accomplishment of your comfort is at the return of Christ. The fullness of your comfort is the bodily resurrection. And fourth, I'd have you see the pinnacle of your comfort, the end of verse 17. Paul concludes verse 17 with these words, and so we will be with the Lord forever. The final goal is to be with Jesus Christ forever, to never be separated from him. Too often today, even within the church, we think of Jesus in rather impersonal terms. We may stress it's important to be like Jesus, that Jesus sets a pattern and example, and indeed he does. But you do not have to have a relationship with someone who is an example. We are frequently reminded in gospel preaching churches of the historicity of the facts of the gospel, that Jesus actually did die on the cross and rise from the grave that he was a real historical person, and that is true. But an historical person can seem to belong in books or museums, and so Jesus may seem impersonal. And even when talking about Christ's return, we often talk more about the details surrounding that turn than the most important thing. It's Jesus coming back. He's a person, and what he wants more than anything else is a relationship with his people. Therefore, you should look for that day when you will be with him forever. And not only that, you get to be with all the other believers forever. We will be with him, he says. When Jesus returns, there's going to be a marvelous reunion. A reunion that brings together believers of all time, past, present, future. Believers such as Abraham, David, Peter, believers who have already died, your loved ones if they trusted in Christ. Paul looks forward to the saying, we will be with Jesus forever, united together. And so Jesus ushers in a new time, in eternity, a time of eternal communion 
with him and one another. And that is our completed hope, the pinnacle of our comfort, your reunion with Christ and with one another. And therefore, Paul concludes our passage by saying, therefore, encourage each other with these words. My brothers and sisters in Christ, as you face death, yours or any fellow believer, do not sorrow as one who has no hope. Rather, know the hope of the gospel. Remind yourself of this sure and certain hope. Concentrate on this hope. Be comforted by this hope. Why? Because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the place you must begin. Remember that this is the same Jesus who will completely conquer all those who oppose him and who is coming back. Remember that you have a bodily hope in the day of resurrection. And in that bodily hope, you will have a marvelous reunion. If you are one who trusts in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, then you have a hope that can carry you through death, even your own. Our gracious and holy God, we do not like to think about those things which hurt. We often want to put them far away from us, lest we be disturbed in our present existence. But gracious Father, you do remind us both as we look around us at a dying world, as we see ourselves age and suffer problems, as we know those who have died. Our gracious Father, we would ask that you would comfort us by your Spirit with the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. We thank you for him who died and rose again and the glorious hope we have through him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.